having now steadfast confirmation of an absolutely surety that Saul intends to kill David. Jonathan shares the sad news with his beloved friend. This is the 44th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading from 1 Samuel in chapter 20. 1 Samuel in chapter 20, beginning in stanza 35, verse 35, through the end of the chapter, verse 42. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad with him. And he said unto his lad, Run, find out now the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad was come to the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond thee? And Jonathan cried after the lad, Make speed, haste, stay not. And Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the lad knew not anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his artillery unto his lad and said unto him, Go, carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. And they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, forasmuch as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, his first epistle to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, the first three verses, But the same spirit, the apostle writes, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother, and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, so that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower they are, fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. As the relationship between Saul and his son Jonathan deteriorates, the situation becomes more combative to the point where Jonathan plans to actively frustrate the king's plans to kill David. And whenever wicked men perpetuate violence of any kind, especially against God's anointed, the righteous are called to do everything in their power to frustrate those plans. Jonathan was going to do everything, even against his father, even against the king, to frustrate the plans of the tyrant. Jonathan is ready to act, even if it means his own death. He is ready to act in behalf of David in defiance against the tyrannical king. It is here again where the character of Jonathan as a righteous man is clearly evidenced. The depth of Jonathan's frustration and anger against Saul is expressed in verse 34, as we read last time. So Jonathan arose from the table because he knew his father was going to kill him, if you remember, in fierce anger. 
knowing that what his father was doing was unjust, it was unbiblical, it was wicked, it was violent. He was bringing affliction upon righteous David for no reason whatsoever, but because of his tyrannical narcissism, his quest for power and a dynasty, he was bringing his tyrannical mind and his wicked violence against this righteous man David for no reason whatsoever, but for his own lusts. So Jonathan arises from the table in fierce anger and he eats nothing because of the ceremony there that month. He was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. So having already explained the plan to David, Jonathan now sets it in motion. So it comes to pass in the morning, the first thing in the morning, Jonathan goes out into the field at the time appointed and he brings with him a small boy. Now Jonathan was to shoot an arrow into the field. This was the plan that he had with David. He would shoot an arrow onto the field, and if David was still in peril, in other words, if Saul still was going to kill David, and desired to kill David, Jonathan was to tell his servant, who was this young boy, that the arrow was beyond him, and that he couldn't get the arrows. And so while hidden, David watches to see what the verdict will be. And he said unto his lad, run, find out now where the arrows are that I shoot, And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad was come to the place of the arrow where Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond thee? In other words, it's beyond thee. You cannot get it. And he said to the lad, Make speed, haste, stay not. And he gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the lad knew not anything. This was to show David that Saul still intended wickedness. His motive for killing David was unjust, and yet he was continuing to desire the death of this righteous future king. Jonathan gives then his weapons to the young boy and tells him to return back to the city so that he and David could be alone to discuss the matter more privately. This is a very sad event. After the young boy departs, David, of course, emerges from his hiding place, and as we over already observed, David is hiding from this tyrannical Saul and this affords us a few lessons. During any age when tyranny becomes violent to the point that it did at this point in David and Jonathan's life, according to David's cunning, he hides. He hid himself and that was a biblical tactic. Depending on the intensity of the tyranny, a Christian may seek to hide rather than resist, depending on the situation. Now, of course, there are times when the Christian needs to fight or when he needs to run, depending on the situation. But this was a period where murder was intended. Not slander, those days are over, but murder. So David, with his cunning, he hides. So at this point, David hides until the coast is clear Safety is assured. Now safety is assured. The little boy is gone and Jonathan is alone with David. So Jonathan's actions here also provide us with further tactical lessons because, look, the Bible is about how we are to navigate our lives. If we try to navigate our lives, when the afflictions come, as the Apostle Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, not only will afflictions come, we as Christians are appointed to affliction. We can rest assured that we will be afflicted. We will be slandered. We will be tossed to and fro. We will even be sought out to be murdered. That is what we can be assured of because we are appointed to those afflictions. But as we've already learned, the afflictions are there to mature us. 
David was afflicted to such a degree at this time for one reason only because he was going to be the future king. He needed to be tried. He needed to be tested. He needed to know what affliction was like because once he got into the office of king, there would be plenty of afflictions, plenty of trials. and He needed to be groomed and God in his glorious mercy and his mysterious providence, he's grooming David for a great period of, of, of reign over Israel as a righteous future king. Jonathan's actions provide us with some tactical lessons. Notice, firstly, Jonathan takes with him a small boy, rather than an armor-bearer, a man of war, who might act as his armor-bearer. And this verse identifies very clearly, and you wonder why, why he's got so particular to identify this as a little lad, literally, in the Hebrew, a small child. Why a small boy? Well, both David's hiding and Jonathan's plan on warning David had to be kept secret at all costs. It would be both easier and safer if an ignorant little boy would accompany Jonathan, who would not be any wiser to his plan than a grown man who might be suspicious of the situation. So Jonathan is very cunning, and his cunning is to be praised, seeing he is doing everything that he can to keep the situation secret. Sometimes we have to do things under the table, secretly, against the tyranny of the wicked. And so Jonathan does not confide in anyone that he is unsure of. But rather, he keeps the situation secret and he uses an ignorant boy to execute his plan. Secondly, Jonathan goes into the field to warn David early in the morning. Now, the Hebrew word used for morning can also be translated as in the dawn, in the early breaking hours of the day. The word itself comes from the root to break forth. It is the the time when the, the sun breaks forth through the darkness, signifying that the hour was at the break of dawn. Jonathan, in other words, practically speaking, he wastes no time in warning David just in case Saul might send a posse to look for him. Now, whenever there is a pressing issue, the lesson here is we need to deal with it as early as possible. There can be no delay in our warning the brethren when we see that they are in danger of the tyrant. However, there's a spiritual, as there is with all scripture, there's a spiritual lesson to be learned here as well. And the spiritual lesson is symbolic. We know that the Lord Christ rose at the break of dawn, symbolizing that at that time when he rises from the dead, it symbolized the liberation of his people from the tyranny of sin, death, and the evil devices of wicked men. David's liberation will establish Israel as a free people, no longer under the tyrannical hand of King Saul. He's not going to be killed by Saul. He's not going to be destroyed by Saul. So Jonathan goes early in the morning, signifying that it is the point where David now will be liberated to become the future king, not at the hand of Saul's tyranny. So David's liberation will now establish Israel as a free people. Thirdly, Once this young little boy departs, then David comes out of hiding. And this is the result of Jonathan's credentials as a man who was a brother who could be trusted. You see, David was trusting Jonathan with his life. We need to have a Jonathan in our lives, at least one. A Jonathan or a David. Someone we can trust in. So Jonathan's credentials, his long train of credentials where David now could see, yes, Jonathan is a man of God. Jonathan is a man of integrity. Jonathan is a man whom I can trust. So Jonathan comes out of hiding. 
And then he does something very interesting in order to assure David of his commitment to the covenant oath that they swore. He gives all of his weapons, and you wonder why. Why would Jonathan, he very clearly, it says that he gives all of his weapons to this young boy, and he says, take them back to the city. He leaves himself without any weapons whatsoever. Now, Jonathan didn't have to do that because David loved him and David trusted him. He didn't have to do that, but he did nevertheless. In other words, he makes himself totally vulnerable before David, showing that he has no intentions of betrayal because betrayal is a horrible thing. So he strips himself of any hint of betrayal, unlike Judas Iscariot. When Judas came to the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden Gethsemane with the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, they came to him with weapons of violence in order to arrest him and murder him in an unjust trial. Jonathan did not do that. He stripped himself of all of his weapons. And we read this in Matthew 26 and verse 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, a betrayal, a betraying man, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Jonathan wants to assure David that there is no malice in his intention. So he strips himself of all indications of betrayal by sending his weapons back to the city where they belong because this is where the betrayal resides, in the city where Saul sits upon the throne. Now we should establish ourselves, as Jonathan did, as trustworthy individuals without any hint of betrayal in our thoughts and our actions. But that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes consistency. Jonathan was consistent. Now consider for a moment the initial act of David once he emerges from his hiding. And as soon as the lad was gone, verse 41, David arose out of a place toward the south and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. He knew what was happening. This is perhaps one of the saddest stories in scripture. But notice what David does when he comes out of hiding. He falls on his face and he worships. This speaks volumes as to David's heart. He is obviously relieved that Jonathan has not betrayed him. He thanks God, of course, for such a deliverance. Certainly, that might have been the situation since David knew that he was taking Jonathan's place as king when Jonathan was the next in line. You see, it was to be Saul, then Jonathan for the kingdom. And yet Jonathan says, no, the kingdom is not mine. The kingdom is thine. And even though David and Jonathan swore an oath together, David might have remained cautious until he was assured without any doubt whatsoever. So Jonathan, sending away the lad, giving him his armor, giving him his weapons of warfare, showing himself vulnerable before David, saying, no, I can be trusted, I am for thee. I will establish thee. I will not establish me. Here's a man, a faithful man, a friend of David, that is not about himself. He's giving himself for another. Now David bows, not once, but three times in humble submission and thanksgiving to the Lord that Jonathan did not betray him, that he would be now liberated, that he would now have a moment to go forth and to fulfill the commission that God had given him. And this is another act of humiliation that David shows before God and man. Note how David does not come out of hiding to encourage Jonathan to conspire with him to kill Saul. He doesn't say, okay, now we know Saul is going to kill me. You and I, let's get an army together and go and kill your father. No. He simply gives thanks to God 
He humbles himself before the throne of God, knowing that vengeance is the Lord's, and he's waiting. He's waiting. Knowing that the wrath of Saul is upon him, he's still waiting to see what God would have him to do. Now, it's interesting how God says he's bowed himself three times. And then number three is always significant. Three days and three nights. Of course, that's always significant. The number three, referring to the liberation once again of sin. The liberation from sin and death by the triune God and the atoning Christ when he was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. David, however, doesn't just bow. He deliberately faces toward the south and then he bows. Now, that's significant as well. Both Bethel and Jerusalem were in the south. Both of these cities identify spiritual reality. Bethel literally means the house of God and Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. And David was bowing to the throne of God, even to Jerusalem where he would finally take over Jerusalem and establish Jerusalem as the city of peace. So David consciously faces the south, perhaps in anticipation of what he will accomplish by his reign as king. Now, understand something. David wasn't the king yet. All he had was God's promise. That's all he had. Had nothing. No tangible tokens, just a word. You will be the king. You are righteous, soul is wicked. You will be the king. That's all he had. He had to believe it. Either he believed it, or he was doomed to hopelessness. But because of his faith, because he believed the word of God, the word of God that said that he would vindicate the righteous and that he would put down the wicked, because he believed that he was able to carry on through all of the affliction. And affliction was only beginning at this point. So he bows and he faces the city of peace. He faces the house of God because he will establish the house of God and he will establish the city of peace and he will bring righteousness out of unrighteousness and light out of darkness. And that's what our task is. Once again, we see the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel plan depicted in this scenario. It was he, the Lord Jesus Christ, that established the house of God and the city of peace for his elect. And we see David as a great type of Christ. David also falls to the ground for another reason. He bows in great sorrow. Here is a man overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, knowing what is to come. Because what David is about to face, in the reality of the situation, he's about to face almost annihilation. He's about to lose everything. No longer can he go to his father's house, can't go home, can't go to Saul's court, because that's where Saul wants to kill him. He will be exiled, a renegade, hunted, So David is overwhelmed about what is going to happen. He's about to lose everything. But the thing that he's going to lose, which is the most horrendous thing, was his friend Jonathan. He's going to lose Jonathan. He's going to lose his wife, his ministry at the court of Saul, his freedom to openly worship his God. He's about to lose everything, but he's about to gain everything. Adam Clark comments, the great commentator, he says, David's distress must, in the nature of things, be the greatest. Besides his friend Jonathan, whom he was now about to lose forever, he lost his wife, his relatives, his country, and what was most afflictive, 
the altars of his God and the ordinances of his religion. And yet, here's the man who the prophet Samuel said would be king. Interestingly, before we gain, we must lose. Before we are brought to the pinnacle of glory, we must eat that humble pie. So in addition, however, to losing everything, which was bad enough, he was now going to be hunted as a traitor. He was going to be slandered to the point where even the Israelites believed, and Saul's army believed, that David was actually a traitor. And yet, in all this, even though he knew what was befalling him at that point, in all of this, he bows, he worships God, knowing that God will vindicate him, knowing that he knew what God had told him, and he would be brought the victory promised by Samuel. So here again, here's a man who's flesh and blood, just like us. He's no no perfect man. But here's a man, a simple man, a humble shepherd boy, who trusts God. Incredible faith. Faith in something that seemed almost impossible, and yet what was impossible with man. Notice, what David was dealing with was this is impossible. I can't, I can't deal with this. I can't get away from this. Saul has an army. Saul has Israel. Saul has all of these things. He will hunt me. He will find me. I have nothing. I'm a dead man. It is impossible to see any way through this. And yet, God has said, what is impossible with man is possible, very possible, entirely possible with God. And in David's case, it was confirmed to be the reality. But time had to elapse between the humble and the glorification. Finally, David knows that he is doomed without hope if God is not going to intervene and protect him. And that's behind his prayer. Having prostrated himself before God is an act of total reliance upon the mercy of God, and that's all he had. And I think, beloved, I really think that sometimes we need to have everything taken from us so that the only thing left is the only thing that really matters, and that is hope in God. While a man of war himself, David, the giant killer David, a killer of giants and a physician of souls by his skillful psaltery, even though this man was a giant, he still had to rely on God because David knew himself to be but a man. And so knowing his limitations, he worships. Sometimes we think that, oh, my my lot is so horrible, my lot is so bad, I, 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 I just can't bear it anymore. But the place to go when you can't bear it anymore is before the throne of God. Next we read of David's emotional sorrow in losing a trusted friend. And they kissed one another and wept with one another until David exceeding, exceedingly sorrowful, exceeded the weeping. David cries even more uncontrollably. This gives us insight into the hearts of these two men. Number one. First, they depart from another with a kiss. Notice, and they kissed one another. This was an act of love and an act to solidify their reconciliation with each other and with God. This is why David counsels the kings of the earth in Psalm 2 to kiss the son lest he become angry and ye perish in the way. Because the idea of kissing or kissing the son, 
means to be reconciled with the Son, God Himself, which is the opposite of being at odds. The Apostle tells the brethren that they are to greet one another with a holy kiss, symbolizing both love and a spirit of reconciliation. Notice he says this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.26. He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We see this symbology played out in the marriage ceremony. When the couples are finally wed together, the final act is they are told to kiss one another after they take their vows of devotion and love. You wonder, well, why is that? Is that just a tradition? There's nothing, nothing just happenstance in this world. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a breach in their relationship resulting in accusations and broken communion and a broken communication. And the marriage kiss symbolizes a reversal where man and woman, husband and wife, are now one, having been at odds because of the fall, now are one and they kiss symbolically in a reconciliation and a motion of love and devotion one to another. And this is why the Shulamite calls upon her husband Solomon to kiss her with the kisses of his mouth, symbolizing that reconciliation. In the Song of Solomon, we read this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. So this is language both of love and of constant reconciliation. And and what is interesting about this is the kisses are not given with the lips, but rather with the mouth. Notice, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's an odd language. We don't kiss with the mouth, we kiss with the lips. Well, well, why the mouth? Is there a mistake? Did Solomon make a mistake? Did the Spirit of God moving Solomon to write this make a mistake? No, because from the mouth comes the Word. From the mouth comes the Word of God. Because it's from the mouth where words come from. So if we look at this symbolically as the church calling upon Jesus to kiss us with the kisses of His mouth, it implies that He is reconciling Himself to the church and to every one of us by His words, the gospel of His love. But there are other kisses, however, that are spoken of in Scripture which are not so lovely. They are deceptive. These are the kisses of betrayal, or more commonly known as the Judas kiss. This is a hypocritical kiss by which the betrayer hides his real intentions behind the salutation of a kiss. We read this in Matthew 26, 48. Now he that betrayeth him gave him a sign, saying, Whosoever I shall kiss that same as he, hold him fast. Secondly, Jonathan and David weep together, but David weeps more. This too shows the heart of the man of God. He has found a faithful friend, and finally finding this faithful friend, he must now let him go. Because of the violence and viciousness of Saul, it is good to find a faithful friend, and it is so difficult to have him to go because of some wickedness of man. Reading this, it was difficult for me to associate because it was so sorrowful. It was difficult for me to recognize, to try to emphasize in my heart and empathize and sympathize with what these men were going through the most sad event. So he's found a faithful friend in Jonathan, but now he must let him go. Now, why would, why would David be so moved as to weep more than Jonathan? Why would it say that he wept exceeding? He was weeping even, even more. 
Well, I can only surmise the following. David, you know, was the youngest of eight. He was the shepherd boy out there thrown in the field by his brothers. Oh, you take care of the sheep. He was positioned by God into this lot of service to tend the sheep. And, and of course, that was a lonely occupation. He was a lonely boy. One with little chance of fellowship. In fact, when Samuel came to find the Lord's anointed, he went through the seven brothers and they say, well, he's not here. And are there anyone other? And of course, Jesse said, well, but he's insignificant. He's down in the field with sheep. His relationships were not as many as his brother's. And even though he did have later on relationships, they were not as rich as the one he had with with Jonathan. Therefore, losing that, he wept exceedingly. Secondly, David was not well regarded by his brothers. They really didn't think he was um, that much of a big deal. Just as Joseph was not well regarded by his brothers, even to the extent where Jesus Christ, who can see anyone coming of any worth or value out of Nazareth, And remember, David's brothers chided him when he came before Goliath of Geth for being prideful and arrogant, thinking that he could slay the giant. Not very friendly toward young David, perhaps even envious, set him off as inferior. Thirdly, we see that in Jonathan, though, things are different. Jonathan was a true friend. He filled the gap that David had with his brothers And now he was going to lose that which he had found. And that caused him to weep bitterly. And after weeping, and after that subsided, the two men, after composing themselves, Jonathan bids his Christian brother go in peace. Jonathan then reminds David once again of their covenant oath. Notice he says, For as much as we have both sworn of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. This was Jonathan's assurance that David's promise to protect his family when he became king was solidified. Jonathan then departs to return back to the city and to face his father, knowing that his father was still bent on killing David and not knowing what would befall him for warning David. We might want to ask a number of other questions. Why didn't Jonathan say, you know what, my father is out of his mind. The king has gone crazy. He is just bent on murder. Why don't we go together and fight the tyranny? Why didn't Jonathan go with David? Why couldn't he have raised an army against Saul in protection of David, knowing that David was to be the king? Knowing that David was righteous? Why did he go back to the king's court? Well, we don't know exactly why, but perhaps one of the reasons might be to ward off any attempt by Saul to pursue David. Maybe he was going to run interference. And now if that was not possible, then perhaps Jonathan might be able to stall Saul's attempt to hunt down the future king or give him some misinformation as to where David was. But whatever the reason, knowing Jonathan and his character to be cunning, he thought by going back to the court of Saul that he could run the most interference against Saul's wicked intentions in David's behalf by returning to the city to face his father's madness. Now, if he could not run any any interference, then perhaps he could provide intel. And that's exactly, I think, what was happening. Jonathan was probably providing intel to David while he was in exile, while he was on the run from Saul. And so he cunningly removes himself from David back into the city. 
Now, once these true friends depart, David then goes to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob. And at this point, he is on the run. No longer is he hiding. He's on the run. But why is such a providence for the future king? Again, let's look again at the trial. Why would God test the future king in so great a trial? Let's ask it more generally. Again, why does God test and try his children at all? And again, the answer is to mature them, to drive them back to God. And of course, David in his Psalms, probably while he was in exile, he asks the question, has God forgotten to be gracious to his anointed? Has God forgotten me? And that's sometimes what we think. We think we're doing the right thing. We're speaking righteousness. We're doing what is good and right. Why are we being targeted providentially by the wicked? Has God forgotten to be gracious to his people? Why do we have to face tyranny? Has God forgotten to be gracious to his anointed? And the answer is absolutely not. The affliction is his mercy. The affliction is the way we are groomed. And again, why try David and all of his saints in such a furnace of affliction? Why would God give David a true friend in Jonathan and then rip it from him? Why would he tear his heart out, scorching his emotions? Why? Why would he do that? Is God that kind of a God? Is he a vindictive God? A.W. Pink, the commentator, gives this insight. Notice what he says. The son of Jesse had been anointed onto the throne, yet Saul was now bitterly persecuting him. And here's the question. Had God forgotten to be gracious? No, indeed. Has he changed his purpose? That could not be. Why then should the slayer of Goliath now be a fugitive? He hath been appointed to be master of vast treasures, yet he was now reduced to begging bread. You see, here's what A.W. Pink says, faith must be tested. Let me repeat that. Faith must be tested. And we must learn by painful experience the bigger consequences of not trusting in the Lord with all our hearts and the evil fruits which are born whenever we lean on our own understanding or take matters into our own hands, faith must be tested. We cannot seek to, as he says, extricate ourselves from trouble. We must wait upon the Lord. So God is testing David in the most incredible way. So that when he finally becomes the king of Israel, he will have learned through experience, through trial, how to trust God. You know, we talk all day long about affliction and how we are to bear up with affliction and and difficulty. And you don't really know really what that's all about until it comes to your doorstep. And until it comes to your doorstep, you cannot mature. It seems that the greater trial, the greater the future service will be required. And this is especially true in David's case. We read of Hezekiah, the king, in Second Chronicles 32-31, that God left him to try him so that he might know all that was in his heart. Sometime God removes himself. And you say, where is God in this? Where is righteousness? Where is my vindication? And it seems as if God has left us. But God has never left us. 
He wants us to trust even though we feel as if God is not with us. The Apostle James clearly tells us why trials come upon us. Notice, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. What in the world is he thinking? What in the world is this man, moved by the Spirit of God, thinking when he can say, count it all joy when you're tried, when you're tempted? Knowing this, here's why. That the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, so that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The Apostle Peter, and note, these men were men tried in the furnace of fire. These men were hunted. These men were not just slandered. These men didn't just have harsh words thrown at them. When they were brought to the tribunal of Caesar, they were beheaded, they were crucified, they were burned, they were killed in the most horrible way. And yet, they knew that these things are for our maturation. Notice what Peter says. 1 Peter 1, 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations." Notice, if need be. God doesn't try us just because, oh, I think it's time to try this person. God tries us because it's necessary at that time, if need be. So that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Reverend Pink further comments, on the necessity of actually going through difficulties. Who among us has ever prayed not to go through difficulties? All of us. Because we love the flesh. We don't want the flesh to be bothered. We don't want our minds to be confused. But notice what Pink says. It is one thing to believe that I am without strength or wisdom. It is another to know it through actual experience. The truth of God has to be burned into us in the fiery furnace of affliction. And what is that truth? It is to trust God. The truth to trust God. So having left the friendship of Jonathan, the security of his wife and family, David flees to the priest at Nob. Where else could he go? But to the priest. To be strengthened in faith to make sense of the situation that has befallen him, he goes straight to the priest at Nob, where the sword of Goliath is housed. Consider David's options as his wilderness exile begins. He's on his own, but not alone. I'll say that again. He is on his own, but he's not alone. Furthermore, he is not without his supporters. Now, at this point, he's in the woods all by himself. There's nobody rallying around him. Not yet. 
Soon, 600 men rally around him. But at this point, even though he's on his own, he's not alone. God is with him. He has Jonathan. He has Mikael, his wife. He's got the singers and the town folk that have praised him for his bravery. Even some of Saul's own officers, as we saw in chapter 18, they were on David's side. Now what David felt was not really the situation. He felt alone. He felt betrayed. He felt, he felt hunted. And that was all true, but it wasn't the reality of what God had for him. But he has something that he didn't plan on. That was given by God. David has the gift of cunning. God's gift of cunning. Moreover, he had God's gift of bravery and wisdom. He had these, his own intellect, as his tools of survival. He is, however, without the weapons of physical warfare, and that's, of course, what he needed. And that made him vulnerable to any of Saul's army who, who no doubt would be looking for him. He's also, at this point, without any food or water. We see Jonathan not giving him anything. He just says, go in peace, which is quite ironic because there would be war. So he's without any food or water. No provisions. No encouragement. And so he must weigh out his next move. So he decides to seek the safety of the priest in the house of God, knowing that in the house of God he will be fed and provided for with weaponry as he goes to Nob. We shall explore this encounter with the priest and the wicked, betraying murderous Doag, the Edomite, next, when we continue to expound the first prophecy of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.